So there's a saying in some traditions, <coughs> Buddhist traditions, that the <coughs> path that we walk is uh, balanced by two com- complementary qualities, the quality of awareness and the quality of heartfulness, kindness, compassion. And much of what we've been doing, speaking to, cultivating here out in the woods is the cultivation of awareness, of a sensitivity, a receptivity, an openness, curiosity, sensitivity, attunement, and all of the corresponding qualities that can arise from that. And also, in the course of our days, just like in any day in our life, we will also, as well as come up against things of beauty and, and wonder and delight, we will also encounter inevitable challenges struggles, sorrow, frustrations, anger, loss, fear, anxiety, grievances. Or we may be feeling the bittersweet uh, experience of feeling such tremendous love for these woods and this earth and also the corresponding grief and sadness and sorrow at the tremendous devastation that's happening around the globe. And very hard to hold both of those realities, both the beauty and also the loss, the emergent spring and the 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 dying of so many ecosystems. So I want to speak to the heart quality of compassion tonight as a important quality in our life, in our hearts, in our journey, in our practice in nature and also in our lives. This is from the Dalai Lama talking about compassion, who for many uh, is the embodiment of compassion. He says, if you don't want to help the world, that's okay. Just don't cause any problems. (laughs) Simple but profound. So this is from uh, an article on 
the post-Charleston massacre and the power of the human heart. And the article goes, uh, as part of it, it says, the relatives of the people slain inside the historic African-American church in Charleston, South Carolina, early this week were able to speak directly to the accused gunman Friday at his first court appearance. One by one, those who chose to speak at a bond hearing did not turn to anger. Instead, while he remained impassive, they offered him forgiveness and said they were praying for his soul, even as they described the pain of their losses. I forgive you, Nadine Collier, the daughter of 70-year-old Ethel Lance, said at the hearing, her voice breaking with emotion. You took something very precious from me. I, I will never talk to her again. I will never ever hold her again, but I forgive you and I have mercy on your soul. Right, this is a person in a, in, a, in a community with tremendous capacity to love and to forgive and to hold incredible unbearable amount of suffering and find somewhere deep inside their being the fortitude to forgive, to have mercy, to have the courageousness of heart, not to harden in anger and hatred, but to stay open with love, with forgiveness. Almost inconceivable, that power, and yet that is the potential of the human heart to love and to forgive and to have that amount of compassion and that's available and in, in potential in all of us in, in different ways and we don't know really until the times we're tested the capacity of our heart and perhaps we have much deeper uh, capacity than we realize. It is the nature of the heart to love. It's the nature of the heart to care. It's the reason why so many of you feel so much grief and loss at what's happening to the planet, because your hearts are wide open. And when the heart's open, we feel more, and we care more, and we weep more, and we wail more. And hopefully that that grief turns to wise action, to engagement, to standing up. So I'm always struck when I'm teaching, and as I said some days ago, I come thinking about the retreat and the nature practice and being out in the woods and hiking and the beauty and the stars and and then and then human beings show up <laughs> <laughs> with all of their attendant challenges and struggles and woes and beauty but also struggles and as i spoken to that um, that becomes quite a significant part of the retreat. As much as you came here to be in the woods and to meditate outdoors, uh, 
you also, by, by default, also attending to the inner life, to the heart, to whatever history and conditioning and challenges you have had and have currently with your body and with your heart and with your family and with your relationships and with your government and with God and with whoever else. And that's why on the path, this, what I regard as a mature practice, we've integrated the practice, the, the qualities of awareness and the qualities of love. Right? That they're really one and the same quality. When we're fully aware and present to something, there's so many qualities that are also the same qualities in love. There's openness, there's receptivity, there's care, there's attentiveness. There's curiosity, there's allowing, there's letting be, there's spaciousness, there's intimacy. It's not not different than the moment of love, right? All those attendant qualities. So what we're doing in our practice, in all this work that we do in meditation in our lives, is cultivating this wise heart, this kind awareness, this compassionate attention this loving presence, right? many different words pointing to the same thing. And when I talk about how do we meet experience, when we meet experience with loving presence, we're on the right path. There's possibility for healing, for transformation, for freedom, for ease. And hopefully out of the tenderness of our own heart and the tenderness that we feel for the planet, for loved ones that we know, for victims of Charleston or wherever the multitude of victims are, we, we um, learn to value and, and cultivate this kind presence. There's a phrase that I really appreciate. It says, be kind to every person you meet because each person has been asked to carry a great burden. Each person has been asked to carry a great burden. And we look around a room like this and everyone looks relatively healthy and happy and functional and you know, had the good fortune to be here and take time off work and have the resources. And you think, oh, these folks are doing all right. But if we scratch a little deeper, as I get the privilege of doing in, in groups and not scratching, but, you know, hearing, <laughs> hopefully not scratching too much, <laughs> um, I get to hear the burdens. That's, what, that's partly what one the work of a teacher and a therapist and a coach and many other roles, counselor, is you hear the burdens that everybody has. Everybody, nobody gets through life without burdens, without loss, without disappointment, without rejection, without a multitude of stresses. However idyllic your life might look from the outside, so the appropriate response is compassion. It's this kind attention, this loving presence. 
And so in our meditation, in our retreat, and in our lives, we are continually invited to open to the difficulty of life, as well as the beauty, the the pain and and the challenge. And it's not easy. Which is why it's called practice. Someone was asking about that word in the group today, practice. What do you mean by practice? It's a line from, um, what's his name? Alan Anderson. No, well, I don't know, but that's, the line I'm thinking of is from Bob Thurman, but I want to hear that line too, is um, who uh, he says in one of his talks, said, practice, practice, practice. All Buddhists talk about practice, practice, practice. When's the performance? <laughs> You know, when do you like actually, you know, live this stuff? <laughs> Which of course is every moment. You know, really. Every moment's an invitation. I woke up this morning and there's two little baby mice in the who've been oh, you know, being ferreting around all night all night in our in our, in our house up there. And they're in the little trash can and they're looking up. <laughs> And they're so tiny, they're just ridiculously small, they're like that, they're so adorable. And, um, and, you know, take them out to a place away from the house. (laughs) You know, this is is always being invited, how do we respond? Wake up in the morning and maybe we feel really depressed, or we feel really sad, or we feel really forlorn, for no reason. Happens. Hormones, chemicals, who knows what dreams. How do we meet that? How do we meet ourselves when we're feeling really deficient and small and, and, and hopeless? We feel like our white life's a waste of time, or we've wasted so much opportunity. I mean, they're very hard things to meet. These existential dilemmas that we live with as a human being. So how do you meet your own suffering, your own challenges? How do you meet the suffering of loved ones? Maybe it's easier for many people, it's easier to attend to others as a therapist, as a, as a, as a parent, as you know, all the different roles that we have. Sometimes it's easier to allow that compassionate response to tend to the pain of others. But when it comes to our own pain, we're very often very harsh, cruel, judgmental, rejecting, belittling. Oh, you should be over that by now. You should be further along in your practice, whatever the hell that means. Um, you know, you should be over that grief by now. Come on, it's been a year already. Very, very mean, very high. We, we would never say that to someone else, or hopefully we wouldn't. But we say those things to ourselves. We're not so good at meeting the wounds and the young ones and the tenderness and the vulnerability inside. That's why I wrote that book on the inner critic. Because mostly what we are is critical, judgmental uh, forces in our own inner life. And it causes such tremendous burden. The critic is one of the burdens that we carry. And most people have one. And if you don't, good luck. You're lucky. So the Buddha spoke a lot about the the ways that we are vulnerable 
to, to, to suffering. And really the whole body of teaching is pivoted around what is the wise resolution and response to the human dilemma that has inevitable loss, change, death, sickness, not getting what you want, getting what you don't want, losing what you have, separated from what you love. That was his definition of dukkha, of unsatisfactoriness. How do we respond to the micro pains and the macro challenges? Some of them are inevitable as as we get older. Some of them are sudden and they're shocking. A friend of mine was going along to Spirit Rock. No, she wasn't. Her husband was going along to Spirit Rock. She stayed home. He was walking the dog, went to Spirit Rock. He took a walk. He got shot dead in the trail a mile from Spirit Rock. And they just planned their retirement. They bought a house in Costa Rica. They just built it. And everything that she'd built was taken away. Just like that. You never know. We never know. Sometimes it's slow. I have a dear friend who has Parkinson's from an extremely healthy young man and he talks to me about feeling imprisoned by his body because the contraction of the Parkinson's is he feels like he's living in a prison cell. And I just watch how what tremendous tenacity he has to keep turning to that and not collapsing in despair and blame and anger. So on retreat, here you know, and we are here we are in paradise, <laughs> sort of, kind of. Right? And yet, right, we may not be uh, feeling like we're in paradise because of our inner life. Right? And we, we, we often get humbled by by our own Psychology, our needs, our wants, our desires. You know, maybe we're you know, sitting in meditation and we're feeling love and kindness for the, for the trees and the birds and the sweetness of the morning. And then the bell goes, it's time for walk and the thought arises, nobody better take my walking spot. That's my walking path right there. That's my tree. Right? We have this very shameless thought. <laughs> Or the mind that's oriented towards finding fault. There's a million and one things to find fault with anyway, including here. And instead of feeling generosity and gratitude, and we find ourselves fixating on the fact that the coffee wasn't hot enough this morning. Or it ran out, God forbid. Or something. You know, the cushions aren't quite bulky enough, or too bulky. And we're humbled by our you know, just the smallness of our mind, but that we're, we're human, that we, we, we have that. I walked out of the meditation hall the other day, it was at night, and I'm stepping into, I don't use a flashlight very often, and so I'm stepping into, some, into, into my shoes, and I'm like, and I start to walk, and I'm like, these feel a bit funny. <laughs> <laughs> I look down, and not my shoes. <laughs> See if nobody saw that. Just quickly, might find my shoes. 
so uh, one of the uh, students on the, the nature teacher training, he talked about doing this, this long retreat and this person came in with like the waterproof pants every day, you know, that it's that, a nylon, the kind of swish, you know, noisy and, um, you know, he found himself you know, trying to be really calm and, and equanimous and and this this reactivity, and then he came up with a word for this person, swishy pants. <laughs> Here comes swishy pants. <laughs> or as people have talked about in the groups, um, the the stories that are, that we're hearing from the critic, that we're not enough, that I'm not enough that my life isn't enough, my body's not enough, just that, that pervasive malaise of not enoughness, right, which is one of the core themes of the critic, that whatever we do is not enough. Right? It's, it's cripplingly painful to be gripped by that, which we are at times. The deficiency that comes out of that. Or we feel like nobody likes us, we're not welcome. We feel everybody's something. There's some club where we've just joined, but we're not really part of the club. So many ways, you know, or maybe you're feeling the the vulnerability of the of the young ones inside, right? I feel like we carry a multitude of cells, structures, whatever you call them. That we, you know, we're leaving the meditation hall to go for breakfast, and the person in front of us doesn't see us and doesn't hold the door, and the door slams in our face. And that story of nobody ever sees me, <laughs> nobody ever likes me. See, I'm not welcome here. In that moment, it feels really real and incredibly painful, even though it's a distorted perception. So. So what do we do with all that? You know, what do you do with all that? How do you hold and cherish yourself in those difficult places? This is from, I'm sure I'm pronouncing his name right, Eli Weissel, Nobel laureate, Holocaust survivor. Suffering confers neither privilege nor rights. It all depends on how you use it. If you use it to increase the anguish of yourself or others, you are degrading, even betraying it. Yet the day will come when we shall understand that suffering can also elevate human beings. Practice helps us to bear our suffering well. So each moment, as I was speaking about the other day, we have a choice. Seeming choice, sometimes it doesn't feel like a choice, of how we meet what's arising with curiosity or with disdain, with love or rejection. Mostly we sort of skim over the surface of it, distract ourselves, change the channel, and of course we wonder why it follows us around. When I first started meditating, my baseline emotion was sadness, and it, it was. And every time I meditated, I'd hit this sadness, and it went on for years. But I didn't really want to feel. I I, I touch it, and then somehow I would kind of 
smooth it over, switch, switch channels. And I kept complaining, it kept following me around because I wasn't willing to turn towards it, to be with it, to feel it, to allow it. And when I did it, slowly you know, understanding came and resolution came. And it, and it no longer was the, the substrata emotion that, that seemed to run in me. So a story of how to meet difficulty. Some of you have heard this story before, but it's worth repeating. A man's observing a woman in the grocery store with a three-year-old girl in a basket, in a trolley. As they pass the cookie section, the little girl asks for cookies, and the mother says no. And of course, the little girl begins to whine and fuss, and the mother says quietly, Now, Monica, we just have half of the aisles left to go through. Don't be upset. It won't be long. And then they came to the candy aisle, and of course the little girl began to shout for candy. When told she wouldn't have any, she began to cry. And thereupon her mother said, There, there, Monica, don't cry. Only two more aisles to go, and we'll be checking out. When they get to the checkout stand, upon hearing that there'll be no bubblegum purchased, a terrible tantrum uh, arises, and the mother says again patiently, Monica, we'll be through this checkout stand in five minutes, and then you can go home and have a nice nap. The man, curious, follows them out to the parking lot and stops the woman to compliment her. I couldn't help noticing how patient you were with little Monica, he began. Whereupon the mother says, what do you mean? My little girl's name's Tammy. I'm Monica. <laughs> so that's how she chooses to meet, you know, the clamoring, whining, tantruming. <laughs> So, so what is this quality of compassion? I want to just unpack it a little bit and, and explore some of its facets. So the Dalai Lama said, if you want to know what compassion is, look deeply into the eyes of a mother as she cradles her sick and fevered child. So there's a few dimensions to compassion. One is, it has an effect, there's an effective quality. We feel with, compassion to suffer with, we feel the suffering. When someone's crying in the hall or a loved one we, we meet is upset, part of us feels their suffering. Right? That's the empathic quality of, uh, of resonance. And then there's a cognitive component, which is we can put ourselves in their shoes. We can, you know, when, we, when we see someone's crying, you know, we can imagine what that must be like. Tender, difficult. I remember being in um, Europe when uh, the Syrian refugee crisis was going on, and uh, there was a whole shift in mood. In, and when I was in England at the time, and there was a first initially a fear response to this wave of refugees, and then the photo of the Syrian boy, four-year-old boy who was drowned, face down, washed up on the beach, and his father who was incredibly, incredibly distraught. And suddenly shifted from being a, a political uh, um, problem to a humanitarian crisis. Because people could feel, they could resonate, they could empathize with the father and the family and the struggle and realizing these were human beings trying to have a better life and get away from suffering. A very powerful component of compassion. And then how compassion differs from empathy, aside from just feeling with, we also have this 
action, this movement of wanting to relieve, wanting to help, wanting to find some way to support and, and assist and, and relieve the suffering of ourselves. So it's really the dynamic part of practice. Someone asked a question about, you know, sometimes these teachings can be interpreted very easily as, as sounding passive. When you're watching and you're noticing and you're observing and you're allowing and you're letting go and, you know, and that's all true. And in the context of the path, the, that wise seeing and knowing and understanding leads to wise action, wise engagement, wise responsiveness. And we don't just stop at the seeing, we don't just stop at the knowing, but there's also an engagement with life. So compassion arises when we have the courage to genuinely turn to face it and meet it and feel it. When we actually can look at the, you know, in, in the face of someone that we love, or we can feel our own sorrow or anxiety or fear with an open heart, compassion arises. But it does require that we turn in, we lean in, that we face. And that, that is a courageous part. It's so ironic that compassion is considered a, you know, as most heart qualities are, a soft skill. It's something lesser than. So this is a poem I read that I wrote some years ago in reference to what I regard as this really important moment in, in our lives, in practice, when we learn the, the importance of turning towards, particularly turning towards and leaning into the difficult. Your only duty is not to run from here, even if the hole of loss burns deep in your belly, and on waking you feel the dread of walking into the day, empty and exposed. You could pretend try putting on a face other than your own, but that's a game that's never worked and burns only a deeper hole inside the pocket of longing, making the shell you've chosen to live in even more hollow. But there are times when there's no choice but to surrender, to turn towards your loneliness and the empty places within that you've spent a lifetime running from, and you embrace them with delicate hands of love, the way the evening fog envelops the solitary tree without flinching, pressing into and loving every gnarled crevice, every twisted branch, even the forgotten needles fall into the ground. This is the first step that begins the slow journey of completeness, keeps inviting you deeper into the roots of yourself, claiming your place that has been waiting, that is always right here. So, to be curious how and when you turn towards and when you turn away. To not judge yourself for turning away. Sometimes we have limitation. Sometimes we have compassion fatigue, which is more appropriately empathy fatigue, but we feel overwhelmed by the suffering of ourselves or our clients or the people in the world or the world itself. So the quality of compassion is nourished by our capacity for our self-compassion. Kristen Neff, a researcher and psychologist, has done a lot of beautiful work on exploring the, the, the quality of self-compassion. 
And she talks about uh, self-compassion having three components. Being kind and understanding when you're suffering versus judging yourself. Recognizing that pain and failure are unavoidable parts of life. And the ability to face rather than avoid your own pain. So this is partly what we do here in our, in our meditation, in the silence. You know, there's less distraction. And so hopefully we lean into and learn to have some tenderness with ourselves. Because of course that which we can't meet and turn to and open in ourselves, of course we're going to find that same difficulty in everybody else we meet, including our loved ones and our students and clients and whatnot. And you know, the interesting thing about pain that I'm sure you have also know well is that we tend to crave pleasure in, in, in a bit similar to the reading I read yesterday from the Sagadatta, that we crave pleasure and avoid pain. And yet if we look at our lives and see the places that we've grown and transformed, it's not those times that we were blissed out, <laughs> that we were tiptoeing through the tulips. I mean, they're lovely, those moments, but it's not usually where we do our profound transformation. It's when we have you know, shattering loss and incredibly unbearable betrayal and intense physical chronic pain or a debilitating illness that we are able to find much deeper resources, our capacity in our heart. And so, you know, I think when we understand that, we have a different relationship to pain, different relationship to the inevitable suffering. You know, the Buddha talked about the, the teaching of the two darts, which is useful to, re- to remember the first arrow is something like, you know, our body gets sick. Maybe we have, who knows what, an, you know, illness or chronic pain or chronic fatigue. And the second dot is the way that we judge and reject and are harsh and mean to ourselves, blaming ourselves, judging ourselves for it. When we can open to the, the, the gift in the struggle, the gift in the pain, the gift in the sickness or whatever it is, there's more openness, there's more willingness to turn towards. Because we see that's where partly we grow. So I was going to share something, I will share this piece from... Um, I'll share this piece instead. This is a a lovely poem from Jennifer Wellwood, who's a teacher and um, friend. It's called Unconditional. And again, she's speaking about turning towards, in a way, willing to experience aloneness, I discover connection everywhere. Turning to face my fear, I meet the warrior who lives within. Opening to my loss, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness 
without end. Each condition I flee from pursues me. Each condition I welcome transforms me and becomes itself transformed. And really this is the pivot point with working with difficulty. Each condition I flee from pursues me like my sadness did. Each condition I welcome transforms me and becomes itself transformed. Maybe you can know this in your own experience, some of the challenges and difficulties you've been through. How as you walk through the fire of those, as much as you don't want to experience them again or wish them on anybody else, you see how much uh, they've, they've matured the soul. So, a few words about obstacles to compassion because a lovely as lovely as a quality it is the, you know, so we also want to be curious why we don't abide in it so just as a reflection for yourself what interferes with the heart opening to your own pain or the suffering of the world Rumi says, your task is not to seek for love, but merely to seek and find all the barriers within yourself that you have built against it. And the heart closes for many, many reasons, usually because of hurt, because of trauma, because of wounding, because of heartbreak, because of rejection, and a whole litany of things. And our heart closes with our critic, with our judging mind. So be curious for yourselves. What, what is it? And sometimes it's, we're just overloaded. You know, we have compassion fatigue because we live in, a, in, in an age where we just have so much information about so much suffering that's completely um, impossible to hold. If, if we, you know... I'm, I'm an advocate of, of media fasting right? because it's inundating, it's overwhelming, and the, the net result is we go numb because right? it's impossible, or not impossible, but it's very hard for the heart to stay exposed to, to the to traumas and the violence and the oppression and the warfare and the racism and all of it every day without some point closing down. You know, we live in an era where the average person has as much information in one day as a person a hundred years ago had in a lifetime. And you just think about, the, you know, if you're kind of online all day at work, how much input you have. Right? It's, it, the, the heart doesn't have time to process. So we go numb. You know, and I was talking, working with Joanna Macy some time ago, and someone asked the question, you know, what do you think the, the greatest uh, risk is to, to humanity and the planet? And she said, numbness. Because num- with numbness comes inaction. Which is why her work is so much oriented around feeling and grieving and moving that energy so then it becomes, you can actually use that energy to, 
to to engage and to act, but the numbness is actually very uh, problematic because we we shut down and and, and nothing. There's you know, the grief and the rage against what's happening, say ecologically, is a healthy response of the ecosystem which we are part of. And the numbness is also a response, but it's a, it's an overwhelmed response. So I'm I'm very mindful about when and how I receive my information about what's happening in this current administration or what bills are being passed to try and drill and mine on public lands or whatever particular you know, facet of, of uh, life is going on. And I also try and uh, orient towards all of the amazing things that are happening that human beings are doing, including the compassion of the victims in Charleston. So lastly, I just want to share a couple of things about what I see happen as we, as we develop the capacity, as we nurture the quality of compassion and love in our lives. And the first thing that I see is we have much more capacity to be with the difficult. The more that we're willing to face the challenges here and the pain here or the pain out there, we grow with that capacity to to meet it, particularly when we can, when we become fearless and courageous to meet the suffering in our own heart. And I want to share this poem that I love from a poet called Rashani, who I know little about, but I love this poem. And she writes, speaking of the journey that comes, that the, the, in, in a similar way to Jennifer Wellwood was, um, what arises out of the. the the grit of working with, with, with difficulty. She says, There is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken, a shatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable. There is a sorrow beyond all grief which leads to joy and a fragility out of whose depths emerges strength. There is a hollow space too vast for words, words through which we pass with each loss out of whose darkness we are sanctioned into being. There is a cry deeper than all sound whose serrated edges cut the heart as we break open to the place inside which is unbreakable and whole. So I find that very um, both inspiring and reassuring to know that as we walk these painful journeys there's a tenacity, there's something, there's some quality and strength and, and cap- capacity. I know when I work with students and clients, and particularly as a therapist and as a Dharma teacher, you know, the more that I've explored and gone to the deepest, most painful parts in myself, there's a certain kind of fearlessness and capacity and courage when I'm working with people because it feels like there's nowhere I'm afraid to go in my own being. So that's so when people come with the most difficult, traumatic stuff. There's capacity there because it's been developed here, working with this trauma. And the second thing that I see arises is the heart uh, over time is able to hold more paradox. The mind is very dualistic. This and that, right and wrong, me, them, good, bad, terrorists, non-terrorists. 
And the heart doesn't hold such a duality, can hold the victim and the perpetrator, and the exploited and the exploiter, and not make such a dualistic judgment or rejection. Because we see, you know, as, as a, one uh, inmate in San Quentin told to this group that my friend was working with in a, in a meditation group, he said, hurt people hurt people. And his mentor in, the, in prison, also an inmate, Lifer, said, yes, and healed people heal people. And so when, I, so when we hear about whatever atrocity and bombing and just all the many myriad ways that the human beings are uh, horrifically cruel and, and violent towards each other, that it's very clear to me that that, suf- that, that suffering action is coming from suffering. Suffering begets suffering. And one can't really point the finger. And also not see that we all have seeds of all of that in our own mind, that we're not separate. And that's, the heart can understand that. And I remember teaching a retreat in, on the East Coast, and it was winter, and, um, and we're, it was a loving-kindness retreat, and you know the, 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 the instruction is to wish loving kindness for all beings and wish all beings be happy and all of that. And someone said, well, that's impossible. Half the beings need to eat the other beings to be happy. So how can you wish all beings to be happy? And I said, yes, that's true. And the heart wishes all to be well, regardless of that. So some time later in the retreat, she's walking up the, uh, this little path behind the center, snowy ground, leafless trees, and, she look, and she's walking, she sees this flutter of feathers, and she looks up and she sees a hawk eating a chickadee. And she realizes in that moment she wants the hawk to be well and the chickadee, be, chickadee to be well. And the hawk needs to eat the chickadee to live. That is the duality the heart can encompass. You know, in the same way that we're invited to hold the cherishing and witnessing of the beauty of the earth and also of its tragic devastation. Very hard to hold, very painful, excruciating. And I feel like I'm thinking I'm thinking present real time if this is true, but it's as if as when, we, when, the heart, when, when the heart is mature, it has within it the, the capacity of equanimity to hold both, to hold the beauty of this land and knowing not that far away 
as an elk walking across the field. <laughs> On the other side of the river. How to upstage your talk in three easy steps. <laughs> a deer because there is a deer on the land but I'm pretty sure it's an elk because of the size of it and it's white tuft. Rather, rather perfect that nature would display something beautiful while we're talking about holding its beauty and also its devastation. I think it got camera shy and hid behind the bush. Oh, there's all these humans. <laughs> Go back to meditating, you people. <laughs> I get self-critical about whether or not it's here. <laughs> yeah. I thought I heard an elk bugle. Huh? Before. I thought I heard an elk bugle uh -huh. the night before last, but it's too early in the season. I said, well, it was a coyote. Yeah, it was a coyote. The coyote does not sound like an elk bugle. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, the the elk around. They they're generally up high at ground right now, but they're also calving. So. Um, Actually, they are around. The animals are so confused by climate change. <laughs> that is true. So, yeah, so holding the paradox, holding the ambiguity. You know, one of the, you know, I think the, the one of the signs of a, a wise mind and a mature heart is we can hold ambiguity. And we can hold paradox, and we can hold seeming contradictions. And I'll speak more to this tomorrow night. The third thing that I think arises from the wise heart is uh, just a deeper and deeper understanding of our com of a of the commonality of suffering and our shared humanity in that. And, you know, the going back to the line at the beginning of the talk, be kind to every person because each has been asked to carry a great burden. The more that we know our own burden, the more we see this is a shared human experience. We're not a victim, it's not our fault, we're not the only ones. This is part of being human and part of the human family. And therefore we have, hopefully, more patience and more forgiveness and more kindness to others, especially those who are annoying us you know, or acting out. I mentioned no names. You know, they were all vulnerable. They were all uh, uh, fragile. And 
transient. So when we get that, we perhaps hold each other a little more kindly, a little more spaciously. Intercepts the, 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 the lightning speed of the critic to condemn someone. And then we pause for a moment and go, oh yeah, I do that too. I know that in myself. Just like me, I can also be a jerk. Just like me, I can also feel insecure and demand a lot of attention. Just like me, I can... On, 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 on it goes. So and lastly, the last thing I'll say tonight is um, that what also arises out of the wise heart is the desire to help, the desire to heal, the desire to relieve suffering, the desire to do something with one's time and energy and resources and life to help in whatever small way uh, the relief of suffering. I know for myself it's the only thing that really makes any meaning at this point to, to use one's life and one's energy and one's skill and one's capacity and one's privilege and blessings to help others. You know, it's what in Buddhism is called the Bodhisattva principle, which is the desire to help and relieve suffering in whatever way that we do that small and large, near and far. It's a beautiful story that John Seed, uh, Vipassana meditator and activist, talks about. And he was, a long time ago now, he was living, as he he still does, uh, near the rainforest in New South Wales in Australia. And... um, his activist friends called him somewhat urgently and said, you know, come now because the bulldozers are coming to um, cut the local forest, the, the hardwoods. And uh, so he went, and to much to his surprise, because he didn't think of himself as an activist, he found himself on the front line facing the bulldozers and lying down uh, to, um, you know, to protest and to, to, to slow down the logging so they could get a court injunction to, to, to stop the logging. And he had this epiphany, or this epiphany happened through him, and uh, he said, he realized that it wasn't he who was uh, protecting the rainforest, it was the rainforest protecting themselves through him, which is a very beautiful revelation to understand that level of interconnection. So I'll close with a story um, that I love, and it's about, in a way, the, the compassionate heart at work. In the 1930s, a young traveler was exploring the French Alps. He came upon a vast stretch of barren land desolate, forbidding, and ugly, kind of place you hurry from. And suddenly the young traveler stopped dead in his tracks. In the middle of the vast wasteland was a bent-over old man. On his back was a sack of acorns. In his hand was a four-foot length of iron pipe. The man was using the iron pipe to punch holes in the ground. Then from the sack he would take an acorn and put it in the hole. Later the old man told the traveler, I've planted over a 100,000 acorns. 
Perhaps only a tenth of them will grow. The old man's wife and son had died, and this was how he chose to spend his final years. I want to do something useful, he said. Twenty-five years later, the not-so-young traveler returned to the same desolate area. What he saw amazed him. He couldn't believe his eyes. The land was covered with a beautiful forest two miles wide and five miles long. Birds were singing, animals were playing, and wildflowers perfumed the air. The traveler stood there recalling the desolation that once was. A beautiful oak forest stood there now, all because somebody cared. So let's sit together. Thank you.